Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Squatch Radio. My name is Connor Malley, and I'm your host. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to share a little bit about me and why Squatch Radio exists. So I've been a passionate Squatch player for almost 20 years, but what makes my path slightly different from your average Squatch player is I've also made Squatch my career. I've worn almost every hat and worked in almost every role in the industry. Some quick examples are I've gone from being a volunteer at a professional event to then becoming the CEO of the US Open. I've gone from trying to make Team USA to then becoming the director of all national teams while working at US Squash. And I've certainly gone from just playing on squash courts to focusing on how the sport can grow in the United States. What has been a big part of fueling my passion all these years are the fascinating, passionate, and dedicated people involved in our sport. So Squash Radio, well, that's just a way to try and help share those stories. We hope you like it, and if you're interested in growing the sport, get in touch. Or can you help share these stories? Comments are welcome on any social media or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Our biggest challenge is always trying to get the word out, so any help is so much appreciated. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. So my guest today highlights a driving reason behind why Squash Radio exists. This guest is someone whom I've known for over 20 years within the squash industry, yet we've actually never had the chance to really sit down and have a conversation. So if it feels like we're making up for lost time, what the length of the episode is, because we are. In this episode, we connect with Pat Kosker, who, as you will learn, has worn many hats throughout his squash career, but most recently finds himself as the head coach of Hobart, William and Smith. The main topic we dive into today is cultural talk, from what drives team successes and stressors to the realities we are all facing today. We also cover a wide range of topics, and I know it's an extra long one this time, but I think it's worth the listen. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey there, Squash fans. Welcome back to another episode of Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley. And today, I know that I say this a lot, but I'm really excited to have another fantastic guest for you guys. This is Pat Kosker calling in from upstate New York now, originally from New Jersey, but he's in upstate New York because of his new role as the head squash coach of Hobart, William, and Smith. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Connor. Excited to be here. And it just a Point of clarification for the statesman inheritance, Hobart and William Smith Colleges. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that happens a lot. No big deal. <laughs> one, one day we'll get it right. No, no, I get it. Well, do you ever just refer to as Hobart or? Yeah, yeah. When the men are playing, it's it's Hobart College. And uh, when the women are playing, it's William Smith College. We're, we're coordinate system. So we share a campus. We share an athletic department now. But we have uh, two different dean's offices. And oh, interesting different set of resources for each gender or each, uh, each college. So it's, it's really interesting. We could take a whole podcast yeah. to go through the, uh, the coordinate system itself. But Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. So I'm going to start in somewhat of a non-obvious place, but I've been enjoying hearing some of the answers from our guests. So where I'm going to start off, like right now, if you could snap your fingers and you found yourself in a different universe, different path, mm. what would you be doing? Oof. I would be an Olympic ski racer. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah. That was one of my dream jobs. One of my dream goals was to be a uh, a downhill racer and win an Olympic gold medal. Wow. Yeah, I know it sounds sounds totally random, but yeah, yeah my first job was a ski instructor, and I grew up skiing uh, from the age of you know two and a half or three years old, and I really looked up to Billy Kidd and Jean Claude Keely and all these ski racers, and I was pretty deep in the culture and all that, and. We skied every weekend up in the Catskills, Hunter Mountain and Bel Air Mountain, High Mount, uh, Platic Hill for those New York staters. Yeah. So anyway, I'd be at an Olympic ski racer. And, and do you think, and I do want to go through your all the roles that you, you've worn in squash world, but in that universe there, do you think you would have pursued a lot of different roles too? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. Teaching and, and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, so speaking leadership. of which, let's give uh, you, like myself, like many other people we know and love within the squash community, wear many hats or have worn many hats. You know, give me the one minute rundown on, like, throw everything that you've done. In one minute on the clock. You ready? Okay, I'll go pretty quickly. Okay, so Jeff Mitchell, my high school squash coach, gave me an opportunity to coach the summer camps when I was in high school, Westfield High School in New Jersey, uh, when I was probably ninth grade. So, you know, taught the kids, the pink ball, the whole thing, a bunch of squash camps, Brown squash camp with Stewart. Then I went to Bates, played squash at Bates, went off to Northwestern, coach there, Portsmouth Abbey, coach there with Mike Riley, a good friend of mine, and a ton of camps, ton of clinics, all that stuff. Bates College for 11 years, 11 seasons. Oof, I did I did the hedonism or the squash travel or whatever it's called, uh, hedonism, touring pro three times, which was an adventure, still married to my wife. (laughs) And um, yeah, and then street squash for four or five years in New York City with George and and a cast of characters, Pete Carlin and Johnny Smith and Sage Ramage and just amazing group, Larissa Stevenson. And now here I am at Hobart William Smith after having been at uh, Bates for 11 years. Yeah, so... A whole bunch of weird. You weird are a void. It's been it's been awesome. Yeah, it's great. I've seen all sorts of things, all sorts of sides of the of the business, and really enjoyed teaching all sorts of different levels of kids. And um, oh, I forgot to mention, Chris Smith and I do the we co-direct the Newport Steamer yeah. every summer. So that's been well, fun too. The reason why I wanted to quickly run through that is just help the audience and the listeners who don't know you or know you in, in one of those capacities just realize that you have a multitude of perspectives that you bring to every sort of scenario you go through. And for the first part we're going to do here today is, well, the overall theme we're going to do is is culture talk. And we're going to talk about that on the team side, but then also the squash side. And first, let's start with the culture talk of team success and team stress. Because I think it's hard to have one without the other. Sure. And for a multitude of reasons. And, you know, let's define that quickly of like, what do you define as success? Well, first of all, I mean, I, as I mentioned about skiing, I grew up playing, um, I competed in four sports in high school and two in college and uh, obviously squash being one of them. But what those team sports gave me was a completely unique perspective when it came to coaching and playing squash. My teams at Bates, when I was a player, had a lot of tennis players on them or friends and teammates that were just trying out squash. And so it wasn't a lifelong thing for them. It would, you know, they weren't squash rats from the age of six or seven. And so we just sort of gelled in a way that was unique to now. I don't think it really gets like that. Maybe it's like that on some club teams, but now it's, you know, you you bring in kids that have been playing for a long time and played internationally and all that. 
So I guess my point is, is that our culture was one of, hey, isn't this game so much fun? And let's just have fun playing this game. And obviously we'll train hard and we'll listen to coach and all that, but let's just have fun doing it. And I think that, Connor, is, is sort of the, the basis of where we should be going or where we need to be. It sounds very cliche. It's easy for me to say after having coached for a while. But I think some coaches and certainly some players and parents and club pros sort of maybe forget this sometimes, that it's a game. At the end of the day, squash is a game. It should be fun. It should be preparing kids to manage adversity and, and obstacles and prepare them for the rest of their lives. But we need to make it fun or else they'll just stop and it'll become a burden and they'll quit. So I think the common thread is that, that we all love the game. And if you have teammates or team members that don't love the game or aren't playing it for the fun, it's really hard to create a good, cohesive team culture. And when you're, and I know you're, you've newly taken over your position at Hobart's and William Smith's, how are you orienting where you want the success of this program to go? Like, where are your sights on? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's something that keeps me up at night every night. And also with COVID and in this pandemic, you know, where how I can't necessarily have the same access and contact with our, our student athletes that I'd like, because a lot of what we're talking about happens organically on the bus or, you know, in hotel room lounges or at parents' homes for dinner or after the match or before the match, right? A lot of these conversations between team members or between me and, and a team member happen organically within our our arena or our setting. And so doing things virtually or doing things sort of forced online or through text or whatever is just not conducive to, to a lot of this culture building. You know, it's again, it's coach speak, it's cliche, it's day to day, it's crisis management, it's problem solving, it's critical thinking. We have students and, and every coach has students who are going through stuff at home or going through academic challenges or going through relationship stress. And so, you know, at the same time as your your big picture with your team of how good do we want to be or who do we want to bring in or what do we want to look like or what do we want to feel like, we're banging out problems day to day, you know, individual problems. And I found, and maybe this is the sweet spot, this is the answer, that if we're doing it collectively, right? So one of the most recent topics well, two of the most recent topics has been this racial injustice and also mental health. And it's one thing for me to sit on a Zoom and tell everyone that, you know, hey, it's an injustice and it's not right and we should fix it. And it's another for one of our students to sit on that Zoom and say, hey, you know, this is what I'm doing in my community or this is what I think we should do as a team or a program. Same with mental health, hearing somebody else online or a TED talk or a podcast talk about somebody's struggles is one thing when that's heartbreaking and it's, and it's gut-wrenching, but hearing it from a teammate or a team member or me or a coach, it breaks down our barriers. It creates a trust. It creates a, a real bond and relationship and we move forward from there. So to answer your question, that's what we've been really focusing on lately. And it's challenging through Zoom and online. It's really challenging. A lot of those talks, they're just so much more meaningful when you sit in the gym or you sit in, the, in court one and, and talk it out for an hour after practice. But we haven't been able to do that so much. And I completely agree with you. And I, I think this is also realized hidden opportunities that mm -hmm. imagine if we're starting to build a foundation digitally, right? Just Absolutely. think of the connectivity we'll have in person because you can't, Absolutely. can't be or replicate that. But then by the way, I'm sure you know this all too well, like, hey, team, we're all global. You guys can connect like this anytime. 
Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that's one of the opportunities that has come out of this. I mean, we're an international team. A third of my team members come from outside of America. And, you know, the time differences and all that stuff. But everyone has Google Docs, yeah. right? And everyone has Zoom and everyone has email. And so, I mean, there are a lot of examples that I could use of, of how proud I am of my current team, but also that, you know, my former team. But just the collective nature of some of these you know, some of the work that they're doing. I mean, we have really made a priority that if we can't get on court together, that we will do something together. And it, you know, maybe it's a confluence of the summer and politics in the world and in our country, and then also this mental health crisis that we're in. I mean, I'll call it a pandemic of its own. It's a crisis, yeah. Um, especially amongst young people and, and college-age students and, you know, and even us, Connor, right? Course. Yeah, and so we've made it an issue. And you know this too from your playing days and even from, from being a professional. There are times where, you know, the best work that you can do is to stay home and do something else. And, yeah. you know, come, I mean, I want to win, right? Of course, we want to win. We want to get better. We want to improve and squash. But there are times where you have to dial it back and you have to sit outside the court and say, hey, we're going to use the next 45 minutes to do something else. I completely agree. My quick version, because I've given this a lot of thought over time, is take me a while to get here. So please yeah. don't, anyone out there, like it's, putting the work in helps you get clarity mm -hmm. sometimes. So, you know, my North Star is happiness. And the yeah. way that I'm going to be able to achieve it is energy management. And that's it. And then because whatever I want to put my energy behind, I'm going to approach it in the way I normally approach it. Yep. But if, you know, if I don't have those kind of systems as a way to navigate, it's not going to matter. Yeah, we've been really fortunate too. I should just mention this. I mean, at Hobart William Smith, we have some great resources and our, um, our athletic department and the colleges in general just provide our student athletes with so many great resources that that really touch a lot of the points that we're talking about. And so, of course, we want to win and we want to win national championships and win squash matches and all that stuff. But also, the colleges realize that health and safety is is paramount. I mean, it's more than a priority; it's a value, and we just really need to do that, especially in this day and age when there's a lot of loss and a lot of sorrow around us and a lot of you know, negative that we could take in and, and make our own. You're right. It, there's an opportunity there for sure. And and I hope others see that as well. I do want to come back to that in one second. Yeah. But I want to also help sort of identify or align where you're aiming for. And so as a way to kind of draw parallels off of that, I'd like for you to talk about within the squash ecosystem, and we're specifically talking about college squash here. Yeah. What is the model success of a program out there that you think that you're drawing off of? And then also go outside of squash and pick a team or individual in that. So I just, I'd be curious to hear your, mm. your contrast there. It's a really good question. I'm a maybe a um, protege, maybe, of Paul Asianti. We happen to be good friends. He's the coach at this point that I call when the S hits the F and I need some guidance or I need to be talked off the ledge a little bit. You know, I wish I could talk to him more, but we we still talk pretty regularly. And I modeled the Bates culture a little bit off of what he was doing at Trinity in the in the nineties and two thousands. And you know, I just really love the diversity, but not just diversity and ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, languages, religion, schools of thought, belief systems. I just think that makes the whole environment so much more rich and educational. And ultimately, I know it sounds so corny, but ultimately we're educators and, and we're preparing our young people for, for the rest of their lives and in work and in relationships and, and in life. And if you've only run in your circle and in your lane through high school and college, and then you get out and you're in New York City trying to make money, 
you need to know how to relate and how to work with other people that you maybe don't agree with or you don't look like or you don't believe the same things. And so, yeah, the first part is Trinity College is, you know, family, culture. I, I just, I'm, I'm all about that. And Wendy too, I should say, you know, Wendy does the same thing on the women's side. It's just to, to such great success. Quickly to pause for any listener who happens to not know who we're talking about <laughs> is this is Coach Paul Asiante, who's been the head coach of the men's team at Trinity College for well over 25 years at this point, but has been the biggest name in the sport. He's gone on to win 16 or 17 national championships, movies potentially coming out, uh, books written about him, the longest winning streak in any collegiate sport ever. He's just helped uh, take the sport to new levels and is also the U.S. team national coach. I'm just really lucky to have him as a friend. We, we're different in in a lot of areas. He's he's a little bit, a couple of years older than I am and, you know, had a lot of different experiences than I have, but I'm just really fortunate. And and not just Paul. I mean, one of the best parts, you and I have talked about this online and, and I think everyone knows this who follows college squash, but you go to a college squash match and the coaches are friends, you know, we'll bang, our teams will, will bang each other around for four hours. And then you'll see the coaches at the hotel bar together. You know, those players will go on and work together after college, the collegiality for lack of a better word, it's like nothing else. And and so I'm really lucky to have a lot of my closest friends as my competitors and colleagues. I think that's, that's pretty unique. But certainly Trinity College has stood alone culture building. And when I was at Bates, it's one of the schools that I look to sort of aspire to be like. Um, we happen to be in the same conference. And, you know, so it was a little bit easier. But now we're doing some similar things. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to bring kids in from everywhere that have every type of experience. You know, we have students on our team that have been playing squash for one or two years. We have kids that have had international tournament experience. Mm -hmm. and, and those two, that combination is just priceless. And to watch them work together on court five down at the end, you know, together on, you know, grip and, and where to hit the ball on the front wall and service return. You know, I mean, it's it's just, it's amazing. It's one of the reasons why why I got here. But yeah. So it sounds like you've had unique access to Coach Paul, and as did I with my role at U.S. Squash and working with him on the national teams. But I'd be curious, if you had to pick one thing, what is Coach Asiante's superpower? Wow. Oh, man. I don't know. I hope he's listening. Whew. His calm in the eye of the storm. I feel like he has been at the epicenter of all of this. I mean, basically every conversation that you and I or that, that me and other colleagues have about recruiting or culture or, you know, this kid did that and we should cut him from the team and all these conversations, he's seen it, he's done it all. He's been in the, at the epicenter. He's probably has the same conversation with me that he has, you know, he probably has that with, with five or six or maybe 15 or 16 other coaches. And so I think his calm in the eye of the storm is just really remarkable. I also think that, and this is something I, that has changed my life. I mean, our, my family, you know, having children of my own, my, my oldest daughter is seven years old. And seven years ago when she was born, it changed the way that I think about everything, especially the way that I coach my teams and the, the way that I approach my job. And so his experience are even more. I mean, I have a five and a seven-year-old, but he's got you know, he's had a handful of children and they're doing all sorts of different things and the youngest one. And I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. So his perspective on life as it relates to sport and then as it relates more specifically to his team and the issues that his team 
go through, just like everyone else's team go through, I think is really remarkable. You're completely right. And I would just I also felt very fortunate because I mean, think of playing and through the college ranks and then suddenly I'm he was just a, working with him. And then yeah. working with him, right? And yeah, yeah. I'm smart enough to to learn when to to shut up and just listen. And quickly watching him work was in many different capacities was just an amazing opportunity. And I'd say what I saw is his superpower is just he understands people and mm. to a level that they don't even understand themselves yet. And he sees it. And what I, I think he did at Trinity was really see what the hurdles are in front mm. of him and clear them out of the way, both for his program to succeed, as well as then on an individual level, what is that player's need Absolutely. Hurdle to then get it out of the way? Absolutely, which is really hard to do. I mean, I, I experienced a little of that at Bates, you know, and, and it's hard to do. You ruffle feathers, you piss people off, you know, you're perceived as a favorite or you're perceived as a bully, you're pre- you know, and it's tough. You get phone calls and emails and conversations with people that you, you never thought you would get into and people are calling you all sorts of names and, you know, and it's it's tough. I mean, that's something that I've, that I had a really hard time with when we first at Bates started sort of seeing some success you know, some of the the same people that were my champions and my friends and my fans then sort of doubted and said, well, how could this be happening, right? How could they have a national champion? You know, why would a national champion play for Bates College, right? And there must be something wrong. And that was really, that was really hard. I mean, that was, that was like some nights going home thinking like, do I need this shit, Right. And, you know, consoled by my wife, like, you know, no, keep going. And that's where Paul came in, you know, and other coaches too. You know, a lot of friends, I, Chris Applenap is a good friend of mine. And, you know, now he's up at Colby. Um, I wish he had been at Colby when I was at Beats, but, you know, he's a good friend too. And um, yeah, I mean, that's when you lean on your friends and you say, hey, am I doing this right? And they say, yes, you are. And, And I mean, Chris Smith has been a brother to me. He's the friend that everyone needs. You know, I urge everyone listening to find a friend who tells you the truth all the time when you're doing something wrong or when you're doing something right. I just, you know, he's the guy that you need. But yeah, that's Paul. I mean, we we even had those conversations where I said, coach, you know, I know we're playing each other tomorrow. Or there were times where we had the, that conversation, Connor, in the middle of our match. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'd say, coach, I'm really having a hard time with this, you know, and we're, we're supposed to be beating each other up. And he'd say, hey, buddy, you know, you're, you're doing it right. Keep it going, you know. And I just, you know, that's invaluable. Hopefully everyone has somebody like that or at least can find somebody like that throughout their life because uh, it really makes a difference. Well, you're sort of spelling out is you need a good team around you. And that's where for the other part of that, you know, I think you identified kind of what's your, your team success or how, how you orient your own personal team for success. But then quickly, I'd be curious for the other models you look at in other sports, what you want to emulate or draft off of? Like, what what is it in a different sport that you think yeah. is an interesting model for success? Sure. So in my office here where I'm sitting right now, I have a picture of the All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby team. And, um, you know, James Kerr's book, Legacy, just really struck a chord with me on so many different levels, obviously from, from a leadership and, and business standpoint, but also just a team culture standpoint. I, I made my team read it. You know, we've talked about it a couple of times. Just that idea of, you know, that nobody's bigger than the team and that we all need to pitch in, you know, clean the courts after we're done, sweeping the shed, you know, things like those type of examples. Squash is one of those games where it's individual for a lot of it. You know, it's, it's very 
you know, you can prepare your own way and then win and then you get away with that. And now, now you're on a team and you have eight or nine other people next to you and coach says, okay, go warm up in the, you know, on court two, you can't go on court five and sit there with your headphones on, right? You have to, at some level, warm up with your team or else your team is going to think you don't care or you don't want to be with them or you don't trust them or you're doing it for yourself. And there's a fine line there, right? Of course, we're, everyone prepares individually, but that's the point, right? And, and so the New Zealand All Blacks, while there have been many stars that have, you know, shine, shown for that program over the years and, you know, arguably the best organization or sports organization on the planet, they're known as the All Blacks. And you don't really talk about the stars on the team. You talk about the team and you talk about the awards the team won, not so much that the best player won. And squash is unique. I mean, we're in a weird spot where we, we celebrate the top guy, but we also celebrate the national championship team. I use this analogy a lot in business where, mm -hmm. and I've played team sports myself. And what I like about the, the squash or into sports made up in team environment is like, this is what happens in life. Yeah. Regardless of individual success or failures, it's like team success. And yeah. so it is hard, you know, when you lose, but your team wins to, to yeah. get out of your own head to be like, well, we did it. And there's also yeah. where your contributions matter towards yourself and others. Yeah, it's really great to see, you know, we, we have this, the high school prep deal and then a kid comes in and, and says, well, I play number one on my team coach and, you know, like, why am I playing four on this team or whatever? And that's kind of how it starts. And it could be, you know, hey, I play number one for Mexico and why am I playing number two on this team? Right. And that's how it starts at the age of 17 or 18. But then, you know, after three or four years, the whole mentality shifts. And whether it's me or some other coach saying, hey, go work with the number seven player. Or, hey, it's really important that you watch after you're done, right? All these little lessons and details within squash, right? Try really hard even if you're getting crushed, right? Because the number nine kid is watching you and they would love to have the skills that you have, right? And then after three years, you see that, you know, that kid, like all about the team, right? It's happened, you know, I mean, I could give you so many examples in my own experience, but, but it happens in college where they mature, Right. And they, they grow and they realize just what you said, Connor, that, you know, hey, this is going to be the rest of my life. Right. I might be the best person in the room. I might be the smartest in the room. I might be the most skilled person doing this job. But like, I don't get an award for it. If my team makes more money, if we seal the deal, or if we, you know, create a good project and hand it in on time, you know, we'll all get this award or we'll all get more money or whatever. And, and that, you're right, that's life. And I think, I mean, again, it's coach speak and it's very cliche, but that is our role. You know, there's more to be learned in the losses. There's more to be learned in the devastating, you know, it comes down to number one and it's 4-4 four, four, and then you lose 3-2. Like that moment, that kid, that person is going to be successful in life if they remember what they felt and what happened in that moment. And that's my job to sort of convey those messages and, and teach those lessons. And that's, again, to talk about Paul and talk about some of my other colleagues and friends. I mean, that's what we do. The good coaches, that's what we do. You know, what I found is actually now in retrospect, when I look in other environments or do that stuff, where I think the messaging needs to be there at the top and then reinforced at every level. And it's not always clear because it's not always clear to you how that's going to manifest itself or to the individual. And you yeah. know, for what I try and embody is, is a give to get mentality. But it, that yeah. means I have to give first and I don't always know what I'm going to get. It's hard. Some kids, I mean, that's not 
the way that they were yeah. that they were raised or if they again i mean it gets back to this perspective of team sports versus individual sports and i'm not blaming squash it's just the way that we're set up but if you've if you've only played squash and you've only played junior squash and individual spot squash until you get to college that's you may not even know what you just said you may not even have that in your vocabulary you may just be very focused on you know who you're playing next and if I win or lose in advance. And that's that's something as a recruiter, as, as a coach who recruits, that's what we look for. We look for somebody who wants to be part of a team. I mean, there are players out there that aren't highly touted or highly rated, but you know that all they really need is a chance and they want to be on a team and they want to play you know, better players every day. And that kid after two or three or four years is going to be a champion. And that's, I mean, that's recruiting. Yeah. You know, you and I offline have talked about this. So I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to drop a quick knowledge grenade that or suggestion for the future and uh, which I don't want to deviate from this thread because I do want to get back there, but I'm, you you and I have been talking offline about, look, I'm trying to focus 10 years out and where the change is there. And let's think outside the box of what would be healthy to bring in. And by the way, I think a doubles component involved just like tennis where you've got six up top and then three at the bottom for doubles would really bridge that, sure. that concept that we're doing. Cause I know sure. I didn't really touch doubles until, you know, I'm 40, almost 42 now. So I was like 35 or even yeah. later. And that I love that aspect of playing the same sport I love, but having that team aspect. So the teammate, totally. Yeah. Co-ed doubles. How about that? Right. A hundred percent. Right. So I, yeah. I think that's way we can put it in there. And I know Navy, we're not forgetting about you. You guys are predominant. <laughs> champions right so again people don't know this and um, a shout out to because i think a lot of times the focus goes to the team national championships right but you yourself have won an individual national championships at bates and uh the naval academy well not not me my my player my i'm in a colleague one too i did not win you, you're he right played. i do apologize <laughs> for, for, appreciate the clarifications I was, in, I was in the picture i was in the picture connor and i held the trophy but i did not win i mean i guess i will did you carry the water i mean you might have had more roles than you know <laughs> is what i'm saying but no I, yeah no i had a banana in my hand i think <laughs> but no that was that's about it yeah. No, I appreciate it. And I do know it wasn't you actually winning. It was just, you know, <laughs> the, the recruiting and I mean, a slew of other things. But so that's all on the success side. And yeah. part of this is also, you know, is also we get there through stress. Right. And I think one epiphany I had many years ago was, oh, I kept treating stress as a variable versus a constant. And then once totally. once you realize that stress is a constant, you approach it differently. And that's not to say I got this figured out. It just means I have a different lens that I put it through. So I'd love for you to spell out because I think stress can mean different things to different people, how you look at stress and specifically with how your team, what they yeah. encounter for stress, like list it all out, like boyfriend yeah, yeah. relationships. Let's go down that yeah. first. Yeah. So, I mean, First of all, I'll say that a lot of coaches and, you know, you'll hear this in cliche, you know, a lot of self-help or whatever. If you're prepared, then, you you know, you're, you're okay. You shouldn't be stressed, right? You're, well, stress is a constant, right? You can be prepared. You can do all the drills and all the, you can get all the sleep and drink all the water and all the nutrients that you need and you're still going to feel stressed. I think now it's really challenging because a lot of young people and even us, you know, we judge ourselves based on what other people think, right? Whether it's the Instagram, I mean, whatever you want to call it. I sound like an old man now, but like the Instagram culture and social media, right? We, we post something and then everyone 
throws back an opinion of like what they think, right? Which let's drop a pin in that because like yeah, because I think people conflate technology that this didn't exist before versus it's right. Like, did you personally experience that when you were going through college? No, not really. I mean, I, I would beg to differ. Well, I don't remember sending an email or posting to my friends from high school, hey, we, we play Bowden tonight. And, and then my friends being like, oh, like, good luck. I, I hope you don't lose kind of like. No, let's not conflate technology for what okay. happens, right? You're in the cafeteria, you're talking and you say something. Mm-hmm. And then someone across the table is like, loser. So like, you know what I mean? Like that, we still yeah. experience those things. Just right now, the technology is an accelerant. That's all. Yeah, well. Well, right. And I also think that we we give it a lot of credence, right? I mean, a lot of we are especially our young people, like we formulate a lot of opinions that we have about ourselves based on how many likes or how many retweets or whatever. And that in itself is a I'm not saying it's a problem, but that's the reality. But we still had that when you and I were, were growing up. It just now they don't know any different. Well, I'll give you an example. Yasser El Halabi, uh Princeton versus Trinity match where Gustav came back and beat Yasser and, and Trinity won 5-4. That match, that night, Bates and Bowden played an epic match in Brunswick, Maine, right? John Illig was coaching Bates and, and Tomas Fortson was coaching Bowden. Bowden went up 4-1. I mean, Sean Wilkinson can tell you this and Ricky Weisskopf and, and Kush Mahan, but Bowden went up 4-1 and Bates came all the way back. Like, there are... 25 people maybe now 50 people on the planet that know that story <laughs> but but the cover of squash magazine and and what the squash world will remember is that trinity beat princeton and gustav beat yasser right and so i think it is a little bit different ecosphere where you might not know that fnm is playing dickinson you know 20 years ago you might or not 20 15 10 years ago when dickens first started like you might not have known that that was a really stressful big match but now you know it right dickinson kid tweets yeah, about it, it just to put this again and how i look at this is like technology accelerates what already exists yeah Meaning like rob dinnerman could come on here and say well no one even heard about the match between yale and harvard back in the day so you had a technology True. advantage that there was a magazine that was going out that saw it right to now there's the acceleration curve, you know, Moore's law that this is accelerating way higher. And so let's match you are outgunned is what we're we're acknowledging that it's a different reality. And that's where I think a lot of people look at this and say, no, don't worry about that versus no, let's worry about it and let's arm them because there's a way that it can, it needs to become a healthier balance. Sure. So when our students, maybe we're playing, you know, say we're playing Colby at 6 p.m., and they show up at four o'clock or three thirty or something in preparation for that match. They've had a day, right? They've been in class. They've, you know, talked to their parents two, three, four times, or maybe they haven't, right? I mean, maybe that in itself is a stress. Hey, I haven't heard from my mom today, right? Or maybe, hey, my mom has texted me four different times about what I ate and what classes I didn't go to today, right? My parents are getting a divorce. My sister's sick. My boyfriend hasn't talked to me. And then here I am saying, okay, go warm up, right? And this is a big match and you're playing number three tonight, right? And you're on first. And so, I mean, what they're up against is tough. They have to shift mindsets where maybe some have the coping mechanisms to do so and some don't. I would argue that that's a skill in itself. Am I equipped to teach that skill? Maybe. But do I have enough time to teach it? Probably not, right? 
do we have the resources? Do we have a, a you know sports psychologist or two on campus? Is the health center open? Right? I mean, these resources, like their students need need help in sort of dealing with these anxieties and these stresses. And so then the warm-up starts, the team walks the other, you know, Colby walks in. We know, oh man, okay, you know, you played this kid in juniors, right? That's the conversation. Oh man, I played her in juniors and she beat me 3-0 and you know, but I don't know, coach, I think I'm better now. And right. And it's all <laughs> swirling around up there. And here I am saying, okay, it's going to be a close match. Like we can do it though. Right. And, you know, and then the match, you know, intros, which is a sort of a wonky, weird, antiquated way of introducing our squash players, which that's a whole nother conversation about how we need to sort of maybe change, but you know, and that's stressful for some, right. I have to go across the court and shake this kid's hand I don't really want to do that. It's kind of awkward and uncomfortable. Then I have to shake hands with the other coach, which who I don't really like because he never replied to my email. <laughs> right? And then I got to watch my teammates play, which is stressful. Then I have to ref them, which is even more stressful. And then I have to play, which is, is supposed to be the most fun part. But like by the time we get to that, Connor, after two and a half hours, you know? And for you as a coach, right, you have... <laughs> 10 different individuals experiencing that all at the same time all at the same time all at the same time and some are good as i said some have the coping mechanisms okay i'm gonna put my headphones on i'm gonna go in the corner i'm gonna listen to my songs i'm gonna reread my mantras right i'm gonna do some deep breathing i'm gonna do some tm right and others are like hey is it friday and like i don't know where i am and honestly, I don't blame them. I mean, they're, they're 18 to 22. I mean, I remember when I was that age, I didn't have my stuff together. And to be able to compete against a kid who wants to beat you, you know, and the lights are bright and Friday night and there's my ex-girlfriend in the crowd and right. I mean, it's not easy. So yes, it's a stress. It's an anxiety. The preparation. Yes. We try to prepare, you know, we'll turn the sound up. We'll, we'll make it really hot in the building will mimic the refereeing and the scorekeeping. We'll run the scoreboard. Sorry, this is in practice. You're trying to yeah, mimic. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, you know, it's like when, you know, you, Ohio State goes to the big house to play Michigan and there's 110,000 people there, right? Ohio State plays, you know, they practice inside this dome and they turn the noise up and all that stuff. And I mean, you have to do that to some level, but it doesn't, it's not 100%. It doesn't create the same environment. And you just hope that you sort of have taught some form of coping mechanism to the majority of those student athletes or that they had it before, right? That they learned it before and then they can perform, you know? And then if they don't perform, then you have to pick them up, right? And that's as a father, <laughs> I mean, a lot of my life is spent picking up after my children, you know, and I'm not trying to be facetious or funny, but I would argue that a lot of our jobs as coaches is picking up after our kids. And I don't mean, I mean, I mean Gatorade bottles and banana peels, but I also mean picking up the pieces after a loss. Well, and going back to an, another element, right? If we look at this, it's because you were given that, right? Mm -hmm. So this is going back to the give or get. Like we didn't have these innate capabilities coming out of the womb. Therefore, we were given these and now we're trying to give them back to others. In order, to I, I love it. I mean, I think it's really hard. It's really challenging, but I love it. And it's I think all of us, you know, all of my colleagues and friends that, that coach in college, I mean, we wouldn't probably be doing it if we didn't enjoy it. Yeah. But we're sort of gluttons for, for punishment, for sure. And, you know, it's a very thankless job in a way. 
but it's also really, really important because they're going to go off and get jobs and marry people and whatever. And then they're going to come back and say, Hey, I learned that from coach yeah. or Hey coach, help me with that. And that's what you do it for. Right. About this topic of stress, I've had to create a greater understanding of it for myself in order to, yeah. to try and do it. And so that's really is me understanding stress has actually helped that like, look, I'm never going to eliminate stress. So what's my relationship to that? And actually yeah. on the physical side, we need to stress our bodies, stress our muscles in order to get stronger. Yeah. And I think that on the, on the aspect of the mental side, which we're now is really coming more into the, the frontier, it's okay to stress it. And let's have a healthy way to do that, both from a mindset perspective and relationships with others. So I think sometimes it's just, you know, really taking a topic and there are myths or perceptions about it. And it's just, let's frame it in a different light. So Absolutely. We do have some other topics I want to spend some time on. And so to kind of close out this element of the stress, what tips or advice like do you use personally that really help you in this aspect? Again, coach speak, it sounds really corny. Controlling the controllables. You know, I'll give you an example personally. Moving to Central slash Western slash Finger Lakes of New York, you know, Maine was a beautiful, beautiful environment. Here that we have what we call the gray blanket, and the, the blanket covers the sun a lot of times in the fall and the winter, and it's really challenging for me. You know, I don't know if I haven't been diagnosed with seasonal affective disorder, but I'd imagine there's a level of it where if I don't see the sun, I, I kind of am down, right? And I just keep perseverate on it. I just keep talking about this, like how it's cloudy and how I'm down, and it gets to me because it's getting to me, right? Yeah. It, like I, I make it get to me. And so, yeah, so I try and shift my focus to something else. Mm. And I try to use positive verbiage. I try to use, you know, mantras, but it's something that the weather is something I can't control, right? And so I try not to worry about it, but it still gets to me. And that's, I, that's the closest I can think to what some of our kids are going through, where, you know, the stress of their day, whether it's academic or social or athletic or, you know, health or whatever is so heavy. But they feed, you know, we feed into it, right? We keep talking about how it's heavy. So it's great. It's breaking that loop. What's the mantra you use to to sort of balance yourself? Oh man, I mean, there. <laughs> how much time do we have? Yeah, no, there are a few. I no, mean, is there I, one I, that kind of like like right now for cold weather, uh, seasonal set, affected disorder, or, or sad? What's your balloon there? I try to go outside and lean into it. I just try to. I like. I look for the sun. You know what I mean? And even if I can't see it. I still find it, right? I'm lucky I have a, you know, a, a dog and we go for a walk every day or a couple, a couple times a day. You know, so it's not so much a mantra. It's that, okay, great. It's cloudy or it's cold. I'm still going outside and I'm going to fight it, right? I mean, I'm a competitor. We're all competitors. And so I, I sort of like lean into that. I almost encourage it or embrace it. And it's something that, transcend, you know, that translates into sort of my coaching style that you know, we play a lot of teams that are better than us right now. And, but like... Let's just go and give it our best. Like, let's embrace that struggle. Let's embrace that. We have some, you know, we're doing some things that we've never done here. And the kids look at me like, well, coach, what is this? Right. And I'm like, let's just do it. Like, you know, it may not translate into a win on Friday, but like when you get that job four years from now, that's when you'll use this, you know? And so it's just pushing the limit and just sort of continuing to, to lean in to the hardships. Yeah. I have, um, and this may change again because it only emerged 
recently, but certainly my mantra for 2021 is going to be, and it's kind of in this order, but that's the way I try and orient for myself is love, empathy, and confront. I like it. Right. And confronting for myself means there are fears that I have that I maybe haven't fully confronted, or there's tension with others that I haven't fully confronted. Sure. And so I think that, but if we do it from a place of love and with empathy, of, yeah. I, there's no way I can understand your perspective, which by the way, yeah. actually is a really good transition into our next topic. So yeah. let's go there. So the other portion of this that we were going to talk about is the culture of squash or squash culture. And I think it's hard to now, especially for me, I want to try and look at the squash culture through a different lens, given the events that happened in 2020. And I think specifically one that has been in our nation's history for far too long is a fair justice system for all citizens and Mm. specifically how that impacts people of color. And the lens that we're currently putting this through is what are the diversity, equity, and inclusion lens that we can be doing? And so I, you know, I know that this is deep for you. I think that you have had a tremendous amount of experience, uh, both personally and a perspective on that. And, you know, before we go in there, I just want to pause on that and say, like, what is that, me even saying this, what does that mean for you? Yeah, yeah, it's been definitely a very challenging year on a few different levels, just to watch our our sort of our society crumble in a way. But I also, you know, COVID has really exposed a lot of our weaknesses and a lot of our vulnerabilities. And I think the positive spin is it gives us a lot of opportunity. And I agree with that. I mean, it definitely does. What I would love to see is some real sustained change. And that's like, that's the million dollar question, right? Everyone realizes now- I think trillion, but yeah. (laughs) Everyone realizes that we have some issues, you know? And I'm talking about we as a, as a people, you know, I'm talking about maybe it's technology, maybe it's capitalism, maybe it's squash, whatever, right? Every segment of society has sort of been exposed a little bit and that's okay, you know? And over time, I mean, if you look at history, I mean, change happens, right? So is it, oh man, change and like, oh no, hold on, we're not changing. Or is it, oh man, okay, I see it. And like, how do we fix it? And who's going to fix it? And then what do we do to fix it? And so. With me and Squash, I mean, I, I see some real ways that we can fix things. I mean, I, the, our Squash community, Connor, is so kind and generous and smart and caring and altruistic and philanthropic. Like, it has to change. We can do it. Like, there's no question we can do it. But ultimately, it's a choice, right? Do we want to do it? Do we want to change? Well, let, let me cut you out there. The answer is people don't innately want to change. And I think that, and I look, I mean this from, I'm not on TikTok. That's a change for me. I'm not really on Snapchat. That's a change for me. So let's just preface that change isn't always natural and it kind of depends on on what. So I think what I have found myself is wanting to change elements of America. And I've struggled to figure out, well, where can I make that change impactful? And there's, I've spent a lot of time searching for it. And I, you know, I kind of realized that it's easy for me on one hand to sit here and say, well, I want to change the sport for the better and, you know, prize money and there's all these other areas. But now I, I really, I have to look at it from a different lens, given the events of this past summer. And I don't know exactly what I'm missing. And there are some aspects that I'm, I'm trying to do it, but I'd love to, yeah. let's figure out what is even, should we be considering for change? Yeah. You know? I think that the SEA programs have done an amazing job 
you know, Tim Wyant and, you know, George Polsky, Steve Gregg, Greg Zaff. I mean, just amazing, you know, David Kay, like amazing leaders, smart people, you know, generous, caring, all that. I don't know if college squash, like right now it's just, it needs to work a little bit smoother, right? And so maybe there's an opportunity there for college squash and SEA, along with U.S. squash's involvement, obviously, to make that process less wonky and more manageable. Do you mind spelling that out a little bit more? Because I think, well, I don't want to give assumptions here. So, and let me flip the script on this a little bit for you. You are now in charge of this process. How would you optimize it? I guess the only way I can say it is their examples. I mean, there are some students that have seamlessly entered the top levels of college squash or even the mid levels of squash, maybe a Bates or a Colby or a Con College or something like that, and or a Hobart William Smith, and done really well and been successful and then graduated with a 3.0 and then gotten jobs, right? But what hasn't happened is we haven't consistently sent SEA students to college consistently graduating across the board, consistently graduating with high GPAs and then getting jobs. And then what also hasn't happened is we haven't produced a national champion outside of prep or, you know, non-SEA or SEA program. Can I just quickly on that? So what I'm hearing is kids that participate in this program, how do we make sure that they go through the sequencing and have all the assistance they need? Now, it just quickly begs the question to me based on what you said that, well, is that the intent of that program? Totally. And that's an issue, Connor. So some explicitly say, hey, okay, we're going to go to boarding school. We're going to play as much squash as we can, get as good as we can, and then go to the best squash playing slash academically oriented college possible, right? And others say, hey, the goal here is to graduate from high school and go to college. Or the other program will say, the goal here is to graduate from college, right? And some leave out squash after high school. Some say, hey, we want to go to Middlebury and play squash, right? And so I guess there's room for interpretation, right? I don't know if SEA has, you know, their one goal. I think their goal is to make sure that the 40 programs around the country survive and thrive and do it the way that they want to do, which I'm okay with. But what ends up happening, what some kids experience is that they go to a school because of, quote unquote, because of squash, and then it just doesn't work, right? They either stop playing squash or they're not happy or they're not happy at the school and then the whole thing sort of falls apart. And so I think that's sort of the issue that I have is that how do we make it so that the student that wants to play squash can still play squash and have fun and, and ha- make it be a, a meaningful experience, but then the student doesn't feel pressured to play squash can do something else. And that's also as meaningful. Yeah, look, and what I'm about to say could be misconstrued, taken out of context, but just actually hearing you say that is it's no different, in my opinion, based on what you just said, and literally this this just popped in my head, that that's any different from any student, right? And now the uber wealthy, they're trying to do that seamless transition, yet they have a tremendous amount of resources trying to do that. Right. Here's where I think we get it wrong, that we think by continuing to do the path that we set out from the beginning is to lead to what? And let me just jump to the chase. I think it's for kids to be happy and be happy adults. Yet the pass that we're doing there, like, I actually don't have a problem, or maybe we shouldn't have a problem that these kids don't play squash in college if it helped them get them. I agree. But if, if we have the connective tissue that, go do whatever you want, by the way, because here's how I viewed the squash community. Yeah. I've barely played in 10 years. 
literally, I can count how many times, yet I have this connective tissue to this community that sure. is a shared experience. And that's sure. what I think I would be trying to be proponent. Yeah, well, you're right, Connor. I mean, ultimately, like what we're talking about earlier with stress and anxiety, there's an expectation that creates this stress, right? So when you, and I don't want to speak for any of the students that I've coached at Street Squash or any students that I've coached at Bates or HWS, but the expectation that when you go through an SEA program and then go to college, like it's hard to quit squash. It's hard to stop because the expectation is, hey, squash got you there or squash helped you get in or squash gave you the financial aid. And so like you have to complete the task kind of thing. And that's stressful in itself. Anyone who has ever had to live up to any expectation put on by somebody else understands that, right? And you're right. The other student from, you know, suburban New Jersey feels the same exact way, right? The difference is, is that when they stop playing squash, there will still be other opportunities or maybe arguably, right? And that's the difference. So here in an effort again to look, I think people know this about me that sometimes, I mean, I definitely think outside the box and I'm trying to reverse back from, it's hard to think a hundred years, but I can try and think 10 years. If I could right now, I'm resourced, I'm giving meaning both money, but also a platform, so to speak, I would reverse this. I would do well-being development as its core focus. I would also then, and this is ancillary on top of the education system, right? Because I think that's kind of what we're talking about, that this is extracurricular activity beyond academics. But I would create a well-being development opportunity and I would blend different life sports, so golf, squash, lacrosse, and also make sure there's an infusion of arts. And so people could come in and specialize within that squash thing. But, you know, you and I both value the fact that we play different sports, yet we can't put that, then put that expectation of like, you have to play that throughout the career. Yeah, that's right. And I coached students at street squash who then subsequently followed, or I shouldn't say followed, but ended up at Bates when I was at Bates and didn't play squash. And I'd see them, you know, few times a week on campus. Hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm doing great, right? Oh, come out and play squash if you want. No, I'm good, coach. And same thing here at, at Hobart William Smith. There are students that have graduated high school from SEA programs that do not participate on our squash teams. And, you know, every time they see me, they sort of cower. Wow, you know, he's going to ask me to play squash. <laughs> well, no, I'm not. Like, I just want them to be happy. And I want them to be, you know, productive members of society. I think there's an expectation because there's a financial component ascribed to that expectation, right? There are people that have given hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to help those students get to wherever we think they should go. Yeah. And that's ultimately, that's really stressful. That's a, that's a stressor. That's an anxiety that is put on a student athlete. I think, so the other part of this, as it relates to squash, I think though, is that in the opportunity, the solution category is that I think that we, you know, me and other coaches, especially college and high school coaches, should give more access and opportunity to our courts. I've heard you say this before, and I've, I know that I'm not alone. This is not my idea. But we should open up our squash courts to community members and to juniors in town that play other sports. Yeah. Right? Imagine if I could have here in Geneva, New York, if I could have 50 juniors play squash, hack around every Sunday afternoon, or twice a week, you know, Sunday at 8 p.m. and Wednesday at 8 p.m., you know, taught by my students or, you know, they hit with me or they don't even hit with me at all. Maybe they just go on court and we leave it open for an hour and put the music on. 
50 kids every semester, every year. And we could do that at Harvard and we could do that at Columbia and we could do that everywhere else. I mean, that would be amazing. So let me bring this back a little bit towards culture because what I actually think as humans, we look for connectivity, we look for community, and we have that in squash. You know, I think that's why you and I are still doing it. I've gone outside and come back. I think realizing that right now we're still only really talking about as much players on court. And look, if you go to a basketball game, who's the person running the scoreboard? Who's the person that is, you know, the manager? And what are the different roles we can spell out to create that culture? Because coaching, you can only coach X amount of players. So how do we attract people into this culture that the community needs a lot of help? And how are we asking for help in that way? Yeah, we just need to be more creative. We need to think, again, I mean, my perspective and and maybe your perspective is from other sports. I think about some of the videography that happens in other sports right now. Pro Squash TV has done a really amazing job of sort of revolutionizing how we watch squash now. But we still only watch it because we're squash fans and and we have to pay for it. I mean, again, I know we went through this five or 10 years ago. It was on tennis channel and all the stuff. Like it just needs to be more accessible. Yeah. And here's what I want to use this opportunity for me and you is change can happen from within and that then impacts others or you within your roles. Like I promise you this 30 athletes you got. Yes. Okay. You could tell 30 stories and (laughs) by the way, Go find a videographer, go find here, tell those 30 stories. And by the way, if you capture it now, next year, it's another 30 stories, but one person has changed and you're going to get the story arc. Like, that's what I'm saying is let's yeah. not, me and Squash Radio, this is me, my dollar, my dime. And I'm trying, I'm doing my effort here. So, you know, if we yeah. think that this needs to be there, this is not outside of reach. With these cell phones, we can do a lot of powerful stuff. And so it's just creating those, those connective tissue or those. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You spoke about this, I think, with, I can't remember who it was, maybe it was Kelsey or maybe it was Jesse, but you know, changing the format a little bit of the game to make it a little bit more dynamic and creative and, and exciting and compelling, whatever adjective you want to use. You know, I remember, and you may have even been there, Connor, with the, the squash showdown in Boston, Symphony Hall. and I wasn't, but I, I love that John Nimick did that. Yeah, I mean, and he's great, right? Obviously, I mean, there are just so many different ways that we can go with this. Obviously, it's exciting to put a squash court in the pyramids or in in Vanderbilt Hall at the TOC and all that stuff. There's just so much more opportunity to do do more with that. I mean, I took the team last year to the TOC and we watched the Rams scoring with Rami and and Nick Matthew. And like, it's, you know, and well, it's unique. I have a hard time following because I couldn't actually see the clock. Um, and I know that's a big component. And then my thought was, well, how do I do that? But then I have to buy these scoreboards and then I have to ask like four people to buy the scoreboards to, you know, the clock and all that stuff. My mind sort of thinks a little bit more of like, am I physically able to do that or not? Sorry, are you talking about implementing this at your program? Yeah, we're just as a practice, you know, a Friday night co-ed practice, right? Like let's do a Ram scoring tournament on a Friday night and live stream the thing to parents. Between me you and I know one other gentleman who's probably the yeah. master at this, Chris Smith. Yeah. You can make that happen. So are you putting that on the air right now? Absolutely. I mean, I think especially in this COVID, I mean, Connor, how many hours a day have I sat by myself thinking about all the things I'm gonna do when I'm able to like see 30 kids at the same time? Like this is one of those. Is how do we make this more exciting? How do we make this more fun, more compelling? Chris, you know, Smitty did his introductions with like Michael Buffer. 
and here now for the St. Paul's Pelicans, right? And be implemented across the board. Right, with the lights and the music. And I mean, I'm not going to name the team, but they sat across the court and they were like, what the hell is this? And why are we doing it this way? But like, why not? Right? Like, it, you know, who cares, right? I mean, it's a high school squash match in Concord, New Hampshire with 27 people watching it online. Like, have some fun with it, right? And again, I may ruffle some feathers and, and maybe I'm going against the establishment or whatever when I say some of these things. But at the same time, and I, I hate to be dramatic about this, but we're sort of in a, in a fight for our lives at this point, right? No. I mean, we see some squash programs getting cut. We see the numbers are there, but like we could do more. There's an opportunity and, and that's... And we just need to think a little bit more creatively. We are facing an existential crisis for the sport. I believe that. I think that we're in an effort to embrace change, need to think differently. And it's also, let's boil down really what our expectations are and how we're approaching it. By the way, this isn't to say, hey, college squash, please change your scoring system, because that's not what we're saying. Right. What I actually think by doing a timed event, players would develop a different skill set that they wouldn't have been forced to. You're going to think differently. Of course, Connor. I mean, you think 100% of coaches do, okay, guys, it's 7-7, we're playing to 11. Why do we do that? We create stress. It's because at some point in their playing career, it's going to be 7-7 in the fifth game, and they're going to need to know what that feels like. And you're right. Yeah, okay. Sometimes there's 90 seconds in between games, but maybe we only make it a minute in practice, right? Have you ever, um, I think it was for court sprints at the end of practice, but it was a randomization court sprint, meaning you didn't know how many court sprints you're going to do. And actually, there's an element of stress there. And that happens in squash, right? Yeah. It's the next point. And so literally, it wasn't over till this rule was implemented. But the coach could say, three more. <laughs> and then you get the three. But they're like, no, I didn't say the rule, right? It's like yeah. kind of like Simon says. And that was such a mental challenge because you keep thinking the what's next versus literally being like, I know this. That's the information you have and with no expectations of what's next. Yeah. Yeah. That's challenging. That's sort of cruel in its own little statistic well, way as well. But yeah. It is and it isn't, right? There's the cruelty is actually not preparing people for the scenarios that they're going to face. Life. Hashtag life. You Connor. got that. And so that's <laughs> that's the the cruelty. In, in my opinion, and I've, you know, look. And again, I mean, I know maybe this isn't on our agenda to talk about, but you well, we have, have a pretty loose agenda. Come on. You, you have to prepare. I, my job, if I'm not preparing my student athletes for adversity, then I'm not doing my job. And that really, I mean, I suppose you could say that it has to do with winning and losing, but it really doesn't have a lot to do with winning and losing. It has to do with the lesson that we win right. and managing losses. Yeah. I mean, and I trust that every single one of my friends, colleagues, competitors are doing the same thing. You know, this is not my theory of, you know, I'm not writing a book about this, but like, that's the crux of my job. Besides providing a safe and fun environment, my job is to prepare our student athletes for life after Hobart and William Smith Colleges. So, and that is part of life after Hobart and William Smith Colleges, like no question. Well, if you think of yourselves as chefs, right? Like you're all, you guys are all cooking food. The difference is who's the master chef? What <laughs> are you preparing? What ingredients are you using? Yeah. What ingredients do we have to use? Yes. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So Lee, we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say you've sponsored other avenues, but squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring squash? 
I, I think there's just a, a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments, I've been to professional tournaments, and you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think Squash Radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to them. And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. I think you nailed it. Is there anything else you, you might want to add? But I think you, you nailed it. That is, <laughs> that's exactly what I think. Because <laughs> I'm in, like, with hope. I've met Hope so many times and they've got into a little bit of conversation, but listening to that conversation you had with her, just, she's just a squash through and through person. And I don't know how many listeners you get, but it doesn't matter. It's the fact that people can now relate to Hope as this person. Hopefully they're going to do that with me. I'm sure, because I'm quite a private person, I'm not, I've never been a person who hung around the squash circle of people, but when I do, I've got some very good friends and they will probably know me, but there's a lot of people who saw me at junior tournaments and a lot of my juniors were top players in the country. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's a great way of bringing some of the personalities from squash. That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again, and back to our show. So we're going to move on to the quickfire section, but I also wanted to give you the last word. Let me ask this two ways. Ways that you are going to be looking at your program to include diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think that will give suggestions for others, but I'll let you do it both. But how are you looking over the next four years of looking to make a difference of how you approach diversity, equity, and inclusion from your team or within regards to your program, I should say. So I will continue to look to include what I call a healthy mix of student athletes in my program. I use that phrase in my interview at Bates College in 2008. I love that, by the way. Healthy mix, right? So, so as it stands right now today here, a third of our students are American students, a third of our students are international students, and then a third of our students are, are SEA American students. So I don't know, American SEA students, whatever you want to call them. Now that creates challenges. It creates stresses and strains, and we pu- push and pull at times, but it's sort of the purpose of what we're doing. It, it's educational, it's compelling, it's fun, it's, it's unique. And so I will continue to stress to admissions and to my administration that we need to maintain a healthy mix of student athletes within the squash program. We have that opportunity within the squash community around the world and in America. And I think it's our duty and my duty to provide that service to our student athletes here at Hobart Willie Smith. So if that's the aspiration commitment you're doing, spell out a specific hurdle that prevents you from achieving that. I mean, there there are a few. Is there one common denominator? Well, a lot of other schools are trying to do that. But speak to yours. Like it could be financial aid. Yeah. It could be I'm recruiting in the wrong area. 
Well, I mean, I think we're doing it right so far. I think it's more that in this time and space of the pandemic and and crunching budgets, shrinking budgets, that certain allocations of funds are just not where they were six months ago or a year ago. And so maybe it's financial aid. Maybe it's that, hey, we would rather give, I mean, this is where I was with my previous institution. Maybe we want to give our financial aid to the American kid from down the road as opposed to the international kid because like we just see a, a duty to give to American students, which I actually agree with, right? Yeah. But I want to give to both, right? I mean, I, I like this is sort of the argument where I want a lot of different kids to come to our school and to experience Hobart William Smith Colleges. I, I think that it's a great place and it's a great fit for a lot of squash students from abroad, but also from America, whether you are from where I grew up or Greenwich, Connecticut, or from the Bronx or from, you know, West Philadelphia. Ultimately, the school has certain priorities and, you know, that's what yeah. we're up against. I mean, essentially, you know, different ways of spelling out recruiting and you are way more versed in this. So from the outside perspective, how I break it down is like, this is selection and admissions process. And this is no different than the Navy SEALs, how they kind of go through their selection process, how you recruit talent, what is the right composition of the team for team success. And so there's a continuum in other areas that still have the same struggle. Yeah, no question. I think we're on the right track and we will continue to recruit a healthy mix of students from around the world and America that will also help squash become more competitive. I mean, I, I just, I'm convinced of that. It's the reason, it's one of the reasons why I came here. Yeah. With that said, I think that we also need to really invest in our student athletes and their health and their security and their feelings. I mean, there's a fine line and I know Paul and I have talked a lot about this, about, you know, how much ownership kids take in all of this at this point, right? How much ownership are they taking if they're talking to their parents all the time, or if parents are calling the deans or calling me or, you know, or if there's a lot of parental involvement, I think there's sort of a fine line. There's a, my job is to allow them to sort of create their own individuality. And that sometimes is really challenging because it means that sometimes they have to fail. And that's something that, you know, in this society, and I'm generalizing, obviously, but we don't want our kids to fail or there's a stigma put to failing. Yeah. I think we need to reverse that. If we can't have them succeed without failure, Totally. And so if you're not prepping them for failure, they'll never succeed. Totally. And so again, that's part of it for sure. I mean, we're all going to make mistakes. We're, we're in human. We're not perfect. Yes, we're human. Exactly. It's what we do with those failures. And so that's kind of, you know, maybe to not trying to be dramatic, but the next five years are obviously really important because we're going to have some failures. I'm going to make some mistakes in recruiting. We're going to make some mistakes because it's all new and this transition what do we do? What does the institution do? What do I do? What do our student athletes do? And how do we move forward? But ultimately, I love mixing it up. I love the diversity. I guess when I think of diversity, I think of variety, right? And it's not just what we look like. It's what we believe. It's where we come from. It's our experiences. And it's just more fun. And I see that as my job. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I appreciate your perspective on that, especially, look, I'm a white man. So sometimes me saying certain things can be misconstrued. And what I want to say here of diversity is also diversity of thought, I think is really important. And by the way, uh, this is a question that is asked in tech recruiting. Where do you keep your ketchup? <laughs> Are you familiar with this? No, I'm not. So the reason why I say that, it's like, let me ask you this. Where do you keep your ketchup? Well, when we first buy it, we keep it in the pantry. Okay. 
And then when we open it, we put it in the bottom arm shelf of the refrigerator. Yeah. So the reason why this is like a hidden question is this identifies that in different cultures, they keep ketchup in different areas for storage. And so when you're going to cook, what you don't realize is you're inspired by what is surrounding it when you're aiming for that one thing. Meaning you're going to cook an entire different meal if it's in a different location because you'll have different ancillary options available to you. I get it. Yeah, I like it. So diversity of thought. Totally. And and political thought. I mean, it's really challenging in this time, in this day. I mean, you know, you see colleges that are retracting statements and silencing one side of thought. And it's a really interesting conversation. I mean, I was a sociology and a history major at, at Bates, and it's a really interesting conversation. And and there have been times with our student athletes where, you know, you start to get into these conversations about religion, right? Especially religion, such a hot topic. And you have the Indian boy and the Pakistani boy, and they're talking about their cultures and they like, they're supposed to hate each other, right? They're like conditioned to not agree, but they're sitting next to each other on the bus and they're talking about it. And, you know, and somebody like me is listening and do I input my, right? And like, where does that go? But the common thread, Connor, is that we're on the same team and we're about to go to, you know, Hamilton College and try and beat the Continentals, right? With the same uniform on. And like, how amazing is that? How amazing is that? Yeah. I mean, this is why I've stayed in, involved in sports for so long is because I do think that there's a higher purpose in terms of this can really bring people together from all different areas. Totally. So I love this. And well, let's just say this this isn't the end of the conversation. It's a pause on this one that we'll pick up at a later date. But I also want to get to the quick fire section here. Right. So as you know, the quick fire is broken into two sections, one that we concentrate on squash and then the other one where I get to know you in a different way. Now, given your expertise, your perspectives, I'm going to orient the squash section of this as all future planning for you. Okay. With the lens that you are now in charge of the sport of squash mm. everywhere, right? And you, what you say has unlimited authority and you can <laughs> implement this. Okay. okay. So it's just like, hey, look, think big, do whatever you want. Money's not an issue, logistics not. And so, what would be areas that, you know, gosh, wouldn't this be great to do? Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. We're going to put 90 seconds on the clock for each area. It's a loose one, right? No conduct okay. warnings, but professional squash. Oh, love professional squash. Watch it as much as I can. Bring it to different places. Uh, I know that's been talked about before. Bring it to, you know, outside, different places, different locations. Involve, televise some of the lower uh, professional squash. Change the format and qualifying, maybe televise the qualifying. All of these, just make it so that it's more relatable, right? We love, I love watching the top guys and top women. But I also want to watch the mid-level, you know, and I want to I want to see their development. So make it more accessible. Maybe, and I know this is tough with finances, but let's knock down the pay a little bit and the pay format and open it up a little bit. What do you mean by that? Well, just maybe it's free, right? Maybe yeah. maybe we don't, right? I mean, maybe we don't charge to watch certain events. A lot of that, just to spell it out there, is already free on Facebook. Yeah, that's true. Good point. Yeah, I mean, just the accessibility of professional squash in areas of the world maybe that don't see as much professional squash, but then also the spotlight more on some of those athletes that are grinding and you know not making a ton of money every every weekend. I like it. So now here's going to be your challenge because we're going to talk about college squash, and you might say the exact same thing there 
So now take it one layer deeper, college squash, you can change it. So I think I, I look at this through diversification of college squash. I think two or three areas. One, we need to change, or I would love to change some of the formats of college squash, the tournament format, maybe have a play in like uh, college football does or a playoff. Maybe that's a better way to describe that or regional playoffs like college baseball does a March madness type setting like college basketball does where there's 64 teams or maybe make it 24 teams or 32 teams and they all play off. Obviously there are constraints with classes and travel and whatever, but just make it a little bit more compelling and a little bit more dynamic and creative and flexible, right? We're not very flexible at this point. So I would do that. I would also create what I call apprenticeship programs. So, you know, I would love to adopt for lack of a better word, a junior coach, or maybe it's an SEA coach and have that coach follow me around for a couple of weekends or at nationals or kind of be sort of a de facto assistant coach, you know, and I would mentor that, that person and help them grow into a coaching role. And same for the board, same for, for the administration of college squash. I would love to see more representation within those leadership roles and more, more people at the table maybe not decision-making people at the table, but just more people at the table that have played recently or that are currently playing. I would just love to see that because I, I the young people, and I, I, I'm biased, obviously I work with young people. The young people are the future. They are the ones that, you know, I mean, I practice every night, Connor. Hey coach, why don't we try this? It's like, oh man, I never thought of that. Totally. In 20, 25 years of coaching class, never thought of that. Wow. And it's so easy for them. Right. I don't think we need to innovate ourselves. We need to be the enablers of innovation. Absolutely. Yeah. Listen, I mean, we need to listen. And I know we're doing that. I know College Squash started the advisory council. And, you know, I, I don't know how much opportunity uh, some of those student athletes have to actually decide and make decisions. Yeah. But I would love to see more of that. And, um, you know, same with U.S. Squash in a way where we just need to ha- sort of have a little bit more representation. I want to make sure, because you said three, I got format, apprenticeship, and did I miss the third? No, I just said two, I okay. guess. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. and this is why, oh gosh, like, you know, and I said this in the in our interview when talking before that you and I have known of each other for yes. decades, right? Yet never had an opportunity to sit down like this. And what I, I said this off air, I'll say on air, what I appreciate is there's a lot we agree on and there's a lot of different things that we don't in that healthy discussion, which I call yeah. the challenge network, right? Mm-hmm. We think of the network and who's that yeah. may tell us stuff that we don't know, but I need to go to someone that challenges it. And in this case, <laughs> we couldn't be more aligned in agreement. But let me give two programs that actually I was thinking about what I wanted to launch and was trying to launch at different times was, which would kind of fulfill that, what you were talking about, would okay. be Squash for America. Mm-hmm. And then the PSA management program. Okay. And so Squash for America, the way I was initially conceptualizing it was, hey, anyone post-college that's coming through that wants to get, like Teach for America, if, if that's not yeah. us, right? But you put them through different environments for six months and you do it for a placement. You got to get the comp, you got to get the pay, but we all need talent in these areas and let's, yeah. let's make it meaningful. And then anyone that wants a concentration on the professional tour, we create the PSA management program, and that's not exclusive to uh, just tour players. This could be college players who are like, I'm not good enough for a background, but I want to travel around. And you're learning social media, ticketing, uh, event totally. management. And sure, you get to play in the qualifying if you want or if you care. So out here in uh, live about 80 miles from Buffalo, 
now I guess a new bandwagon Buffalo Bills fan, Sean McDermott, the coach of the Bills, is just a really intriguing guy because he's sort of under the radar. But, you know, here they are, 13-3 and and going to the AFC Championship or whatever. So Sean McDermott left his job at J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs to be an intern with the Philadelphia Eagles. And so now fast forward, you know, 15 years, and he's the head coach of the Buffalo Bills doing his thing. I think, obviously, there's been a really great push for our young men and women to go into finance in New York City, you know, a lot of econ majors and business majors. And I I love that. But imagine if you could do both, if you could go use your degree and at the same time be an intern. You know, I, I interned at Nike. It taught me so much. I worked at ESPN. It taught me so much about what I do still right now. You My experience in Nike and ESPN had nothing to do with squash, but a lot of the management and the business and the, you know, whether it's marketing or advertising, I, I still use it today. And that was 20 years ago. Pat, as an industry, the squash sport as an industry, how much recruiting occurs in terms of positions for anything to be a coach, to be anything like a work at US squash? We didn't recruit. We put up a help wanted ad. Yeah, and you find really talented people. I just think there could be a more sustainable pipeline, so to speak, right? I mean, a feeder program. Well, you think about like the baseball, the double A system or the, you know, the triple A system. I mean, something like that. NFL is now talking about using Canadian football as like a feeder as opposed to college. Yeah, right? and, and I mean, as a simple thing, again, if this was me with College Squash Nationals, I would have a recruitment board where I would say someone from SEA, someone from a private club, no one represents the private club industry as a whole, commercial club industry as a whole, and the PSA tour, and you're recruiting, do you like social media, which is going to be the the rubber hitting the road for communication stores. So we, even within our sport, aren't organizing behind our own needs. I'm sure there are people that have this idea as well, Connor. I mean, you and I, right? I'm sure. No, no. I mean, the, the difference about, look, and I hope you know this, it's like me coming up with ideas is not, and by the way, when I was at U.S. Squash, everyone would come with me like, have you thought of it? The answer is yes. <laughs> I need time, I need yeah. money, and I need resources. Yeah, yeah money. Yeah, That's it. So yeah. the thing is, I'll roll up my sleeve behind any one of these initiatives. Look, Squash Radio is a perfect example. I am paying to do this. Yeah. So we covered, that was a really good day, <laughs> by the way. Love, that was, we do a lot of other, uh, because I know of your caliber coming in, I kind of had to up the ante there for yeah. the Squash section quick fire. All right. But let's let's shift into the other parts where we get to know you in a different light. Yep. And start off with, um, do you have a favorite movie or documentary? Hmm. Well, I've watched a lot of Netflix and Amazon Prime in the COVID era. My daughters are all about Barbie and Little's Pet Shop and whatever. But I've tried to use the time for self-help slash developmental. So I watched, um, I really like The Last Chance You documentaries. I don't know if you've seen those about no, I about the um, Last Chance U, it's called. And and it's about these sort of Votech schools that bring in transfers or bring in, uh, it's JUCO, it's junior college, sorry, junior college football players and basketball players who are basically there to play their sport and then are looking for that offer from Alabama or Nebraska or wherever. And so the coach or the coaches are you know, minimally paid. They're driving the kids to to practice. You know, they're checking on them. And it's, I mean, it hits home a little bit. Obviously, I'm not driving kids to practice every night, but it hits home because it really strikes a chord where a lot of our effort and our work 
is on the personal end of things, not so much the X's and O's of squash. You know, the X's and O's of squash and the three or four drills and the competition and practice every night, like piece of cake, right? I could play in those all today for the next six months. But really, the variables are, you know, how's the kid feeling from day to day and what are the stresses and strains and, and what we talked about before. So, so last chance you sort of goes through all that. And the coach or the coaches become these heroes because they're basically the parents of these kids. And then when the kid matriculates at Oklahoma on a full scholarship, it's like, well, there you go, like job well done because it changes the whole lot of the family and the kid now is D1 and then he has an NFL future and all that. So I got into that. Obviously, I mean, the Cobra Kai, Tiger King, I had to do that. My wife and I sat and watched those. But no, I like the sports stuff. I try. I, I watch yeah, it. I yeah, I watched it on my own, but yeah. I love it. Next question is, what gets you fired up? And this could be something in squash world that just like, you know, mm. or outside of it. What gets you fired up? Fired up. Oh, man. In a good way or bad way? Try and be. I'm going to let you choose. Okay. Well, how, how about I do both then? I, I think um, I'll start with the negative and end with the positive. I really get upset with injustice. I, I mean, we've seen a lot of injustice recently, and especially when it comes to young people. I think, you know, some of the disparities and inequities that our young people now are facing is just, I mean, it's heartbreaking. And it just really, it really upsets me. It really gets me fired up from education to, you know, to food insecurity, you know, things like that just really get me fired. Educate, I mean, my wife's a teacher and, and my parents were both teachers. And so I just see that education is such a crucial part of our future as a people, as a country, as a world. And if we're not giving kids proper education, but also proper food before they go to school, what are we going to become, right? And so I, that really upsets me. What fires me up on the other side? You know, I was a former, very mediocre soccer player. Um, I used to play baseball in high school and in college, but I was a very mediocre soccer player. And the pomp and circumstance and, and tradition and all that of the World Cup is yeah. amazing. I think soccer football, whatever you want to call it. I'm a dual citizen of France and the United States. And, you know, watching the French national soccer team a couple summers ago was like, I mean, just in tears and watching all those people on the Champs-Élysées celebrate and, you know, the lights and the, the Eiffel Tower and the World Cup is really cool. You know, you see, I, I remember the, the World Cup in South Africa was just like the whole nation rallied around that, right? And the team wasn't very good, but then they, they actually played pretty well. Which team are you talking about here? South African team. Yeah. You, like, because you automatically qualify when you host the tournament, right? And it happened with Russia too. You know, Russia went in there as like a heavy underdog and then they actually played pretty well because they have their, you know, they're at home and they built all these new stadiums and, and their fans are there. And, and it's just, I think soccer is just such a great game. I don't like to see the flopping and flailing everywhere. I don't, I think that that, and the descent to the referee is just, brutal i mean i would love to get rid of that but i think soccer soccer gets me fired up watching high level soccer is just it's just pretty cool yeah i feel the exact same way like and i'm team usa through and through and, and that is just where when i'm watching soccer it's definitely it gets me as a fan to action yeah i mean team usa on the squash side i'm always a huge fan there so question going into the world cup uh for the men are you picking france or, <laughs> team USA, or who, how do you root like if they're playing each other, who are you rooting for? Yeah, Connor, this is a really tough question. I've I've had a lot of people ask me this question. Okay, 
so I know, so we're at a different part now where I think that there are more people in the United States that understand how important it is to have a good soccer team, right? How meaningful it would be for our U.S. men's national team or U.S. women's national team to, to win. But traditionally, it has not been as important. So traditionally, when the two play, I know that the nation of France it's like, that is the thing, right? We can win the World Cup in France. And so when we do, it's like, everything stops. Everything, like everything. All businesses close, people go out on the street, like nobody's doing anything but like celebrating that. Whereas in America, right? Like the women win the national championship and like, yeah, I mean, there might be a hundred thousand people out there, but life is going on. And we're watching on TV for sure. We're happy for them. So the short answer is, is that, it's really tough, but I, I mean, I think um, moving forward, it depends on where the game is. If the game is in America, I'll root for the American. Let's split this two ways because betting, right? Who's your money on? I think I know the answer. So then where's your heart? <laughs> like, Well, first of all, I can't bet because I'm an NCAA coach. So second of all, yeah, I mean, it's clear the French are better today than the Americans. But that does, you know, I think if we, if America, when I say we, that's funny, we can figure out kind of how to win and how to pick off some of these teams, you know, how to pick off Holland and Belgium and right. There's a real chance there. So I'm going to say, I'm going to root for the USA because I, like I, because I know because the, Chris Francis had their day, they may still win. Right. But I would love to see, I'm, I'm sort of an underdog guy. I mean, I would love to see the United States win because right now they're still an underdog. I like it, you know, and, and by the way, this continues our theme that we've been talking about today of like, there's just a different culture behind those, each country and the way that they interact with that sport. Yep. Can I ask you a sort of a tactical question? Because the first part was the injustice uh, gets you fired up. And what's a tactical way you can say, look, if you can do this one simple thing, whether it's mm. donate here, sign up for this newsletter, I don't know what, but what would be one sort of tactical thing to help take a, put a pebble out in towards of trying to help. In big picture society? Sorry, you said injustice. The first part of your answer here was. Yeah, yeah. You mean what can I do or what can I help my students do? What's the suggestion to anyone listening here of what an action that they can take? Yeah, well, I think you have to listen to the other side. Like, I think I, it sounds so corny. And I know I've said that a few times. Like you have to listen to the other side and actually deconstruct your own prejudices or your own thoughts about what you think that somebody else will say or what you think that somebody else will believe or has gone through. Empathy, which I think is something that we have lost in these past few years. Empathy is super important. You have to listen and then actually be able to sort of empathize with that person telling you something. Education, I mean, I, you know, education, education, education. Some of the things that were really great, I mean, I talked to a lot of our colleagues and college squash coaches, friends reached out and, you know, we've going back and forth over this past year and, you know, what can I do with my team and what do you think I should do and all that stuff. And I mean, the fact that HBO or Netflix had kind of like educationally themed documentaries through March and April and through the summer, and all, like that's amazing. You know, send those out to the team, send those out to people that your family members that may, I mean, I have family members that don't agree and believe with, you know, that what I'm saying is actually my reality. And so you just need to sort of educate and listen and then actually empathize. And that's really hard. It's a really, really, really hard human skill to be able to do that. 
Yeah. I think that, I mean, you know, I shared earlier that that's what my 2021 mantra sort of is, is like empathy and confront. And, but one other thing, I'm going to take the opportunity to challenge you or Mm -hmm. challenge what you just said. And again, you may or may not know this, right? Education to me, I don't like. (laughs) Okay. I don't because I had such a challenge of going through the academic and educational institutions. Mm. I was told I was a loser and not good at it. Mm. So here's how I, I repositioned. Yeah. is I love to learn. Mm. I'm a learner. And so what I try and focus in as a tactical thing is I'm trying to listen to learn. Okay. Again, that's just like when I hear education, it's just, it feels like a task versus yeah. tapping into passion of mine of listen to learn. And because I love. I mean, I've been doing, I've been coaching college squash for some time. And when I came here, my first thought was, oh, well, the students are here are like they were where I came from. And so that was a prejudgment. Right. And I took about the first three months. This was, it was sort of a wonky move. I moved in August or September and my wife and and our girls moved in November. So I had basically September, October and November by myself with the team, you know, trying to figure out where the hell I was and who these people were and what I was going to do. And then I, yeah. So what I did was I just listened. I basically interviewed all of our students and said, Hey, you know, who are we? Like, who are you? What do you want to be? What's important to you? What's not important to you? And what I found, Connor, I mean, I sociology major, so I put together a survey and then I asked sort of pointed, targeted questions. What I learned was that what I thought they were was completely different than what they actually were, even though I knew some of them before I even got here, right? And so what they were telling me was basically like, this is who we are and this is where we want to be. And through that is how I shaped where we are today, a year later, right? Or a year and a half later, right? But that takes a lot of time and patience and effort and listening. And coaches, we sometimes are not very conditioned to listen. We're very conditioned to tell you what to do and how to do it and then do it again and then do it again. And it's my way or the highway, right? It's a very old school way of looking at things. But I have had to change, and I'm not, I mean, I'm 45, right? I've had to change the way that I approach how I instruct. A lot of it comes from listening and learning, as you just said. And again, this is a beauty of Paul Asianti and and many other of our colleagues, a lot of our other colleagues, where, where instead of just barking out orders from up top, they're actually saying, hey, okay, you know, what do you think you need today? Oh, you need this? Okay, well, then let's do this, this, and this. And then you show me how you want to do it. Right. And there's a fine line. Obviously, the inmates can't run the asylum, but there is a lot of ownership there. Right. Where somebody comes to me and says, Coach, I really want to work on this today, they're going to work on it pretty hard. Whereas opposed to me saying, Well, this is what we're doing today. And four kids look at me like, I don't want to do that. Right. We're not going to get anything done that day. So I see this, you know, this sort of shift in our culture as sort of the same way. Right. A lot of people out there are saying, I'm very resistant to learning about what's happening on the other side and I want to hear it. Right. We have to address that. We, that has to be a thing. Okay, I get it. But hey, this is my story. And don't you love me? I have a family member, you know, who like for years was like, well, you're fine, right? You have privilege and you coach this fancy sport and you have some money, whatever. And I'm like, hey, it's not all roses. And this is why, right? And it's taken years to deconstruct of like how somebody like me might need help. And anyway. No, I, I really appreciate sort of lingering on that topic. and. One thing that you did say that was very tactical, and I, I would please uh, 
you know, we kind of forget when these podcasts go off, but whatever you shared for that process of the surveying process, I think that that would be something really good to put out there. So whatever sure. you're comfortable doing, please send over and Sure. And anyone that pings us at squashradio@gmail.com will we'll be sure to share. We won't broadcast it, so just email us, and you know, Pat and I can share whatever he's comfortable with. But because people could want to do it and not know how, definitely. I, and I think that's a really powerful thing. And so going on to the next one is uh, this is the TED Talk question, mm. okay. and you're familiar with TED Talks? Yes. Yeah. So the thing is here, the scenario I'm going to give you though is you're going to give a TED Talk, but it can't be about anything that you're well known for. Okay. So it'd be like, what would you go, maybe you have a topic that you already like, or maybe that's a trigger to something you'd love to go explore and then give a presentation about. So what would be your TED Talk? Yeah, wow. Okay. So I'm not a huge science guy. I'm not a huge STEM guy. I, math and, and science sort of turn me off. However, I'm very intrigued by science and I'm like, I want to learn more about science specifically the human brain. I think the human brain might, and again, I, for lack of, I don't want to be too dramatic, it might be the most important and unknown thing on the whole planet, right? Like how does the human brain work and why and all that stuff? So um, specifically with the human brain, it would be really amazing if I knew, first of all, <laughs> I don't want to break the rules here, Connor. If I knew and then I could give a TED Talk on the difference, basically the fight or flight method or the fight or flight scenario, and then like why and how people, certain people like first responders or, you know, maybe it's a coach or a teacher or a parent sort of runs to the roar, so to speak, to use a squash-ish metaphor, and then others cower and, and look to somebody else, right? So why some people run to the fire and others like turn away and are scared and run from it. I would love to know, <laughs> I would love to be able to tell people why that happens and specifically in the brain. And then to teach people to be more active and proactive. You can see there's a theme here, right? Like as a coach, right? I would love to be more proactive to a certain extent if it's helpful. Sometimes it's not helpful to do that, right? And again, speaking of some of our colleagues, like, some of the best coaches in the world, they sit back and they watch it all unfold and then they react, you know, later that night or an hour later, whereas some just run in and create a bigger mess, right? But yeah, why people run in and some don't. So you unknowingly tapped into like my, like one of my core passions and I've been doing this. And by the way, I'll give a future plug to my wife. Uh, her podcast is going to kind of tap into this too. Cool. And so let me just give sort of different pieces that people right now could go potentially learn about that. And one Neuralink with Elon Musk, because you mentioned the brain, so that's the top level of like yeah. the Neuralinks within ourselves that are stopping us from performance. And that is both physiological. So why is it that we have quadriplegic that then it's a neural connection point? So this will help address it. And then also communication. We think at around 500 to 1,000 words per minute. We speak at around 100 to 200 words per maybe a little bit higher, like 250. And then okay. we can type or communicate at about 50 to 100 words. So just think of the layers wow. involved there that you and I are talking and actually probably sending and receiving vast amount of different information. Sure. So the other one, which a very actual one, because there's a fascinating podcast I just listened to on this, is the Lex Friedman podcast. Have you heard of it? Okay. I have not. So he's a professor at MIT and his very first podcast 
It's called Life 3.0. And it's a guy who both studies the universe and the human okay. brain. And the connectivity there yeah. will blow your mind. So I'm all into, I mean, I find myself at 1130 at night or 1230 at night, like watching Cosmos and, you know, sci-fi network. And I'm not a huge sci-fi guy, but I think there's more there. I mean, obviously there's people that agree and, and know more than I do about it, but there's more there between what we're doing here and what our purpose is and this universe and our planet and the pushing and the pulling and magnetism and all this stuff, right? They're both exploration. Yeah. And we don't know how to explore ourselves. Yeah. How can we explore anywhere else, right? So there, we discover ourselves sometimes by exploring others. This whole thing for me, I mean, I really started to rethink some of this. Well, two times in my life, once when I graduated college and then I was in a pretty bad car accident mm. and um, we were hit by a drunk driver actually. And it sort of literally and figuratively like jogged my head and so I'm okay but maybe I'm not okay, actually, Connor. But right, I mean, it just sort of like made me think about my place on the planet and my place in this universe and what am I here for and like, why didn't I die and all these thoughts, right? And also at a time, I should say that, and you remember this too, when you graduate college, there's all these expectations on you. I didn't really know anything. I mean, I knew a little about a lot of things, right? I was not an expert on anything, but here I was like, okay, you have this degree. It costs this amount of money. and so like go do your thing, kid, right? And you don't really know what to do. <laughs> and so there you are. And then you get in this car accident and, you know, it makes you think about what's happening or where, you, you know, who you are and what you're doing there. And then when my children, my first child was born, you start to think like, wow, okay, is this what I'm here for? Right? And as I said, and again, not to be too dramatic, but now I, I think about the kids that I coach, the student athletes that I coach. And I want, I want to be the type of coach that my girls, my own children have, you know, whereas 10 years ago, before they were born, like I wanted to beat Middlebury and Williams and win squash matches. Right. And that's what I was focused on and recruiting and all that stuff. And, and so it's changed my perspective, but I really think that there, and I'm not a terribly religious person in the sense of religion, but there's a different sort of faith happening. And that's, I don't know, I'd love to explore more of that AI and, and sort of our place in the universe. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with tech and AI, and it actually brings it full circle back to philosophy. Yeah. Right. And kind of going back to a comment I made a long, long time ago of like, let's not conflate technology for philosophy that or experience sure. that we've had. Right. And so now, as we're at the dawn of really, I'll tell you this, Pat, like in 10, 20 years, a lot of the, what the world looks like is going to be dramatically different, yet we mm. have the same problems. Mm. And that is, that is just truth. And unless we're really aiming at the same challenges and how to tackle it. So I see it. Well, this kind of segues nicely into the closing question here. And um, I toggle between books or podcasts and I'll give mm. you both. But could you explain the why, though? What book and or podcast would you recommend and why? Mm. So again, I grew up in a French speaking household. My parents were both French and, and Spanish teachers. And I grew up speaking French before I spoke English, actually. And one book that really resonates with me is The Little Prince. It really sort of helped me at a young age or told me maybe at a young age how the adult world worked and functioned. A little bit pessimistic and negative, but I would recommend any adult, especially an adult who's maybe in their 30s or 20s, to read The Little Prince because 
there's a lot of symbolism and allegory and whatever, but it just, it talks about the planet and the world, you know, and, and maybe some of the pitfalls of adulthood and I'm trying not to be too negative, but, but yeah, it's just, it's a really educational sort of book in a way. I've recently gotten into, well, again, I mentioned the legacy by James Kerr. I think anyone that's in business, anyone that's in athletics, that book is just transformative. I think that book, I mean, anyone who plays sports, anyone who watches sports, like anyone who has any relationships or is in any group setting at any point, just transformative. I mean, it it just talks a lot about the unselfish nature of, of how we should be acting a little bit more. And it's obviously there's, you know, we're in America and our culture and our society is focused a lot on making money and, and whatever, but it's just really sort of dials it back a little bit and talks about sort of relationships and interpersonal, you know, dealings. And so James Kerr legacy podcasts besides squash radio. <laughs> I'm a Gary V guy. Did we talk about this? No, oh. no, we didn't talk about this. I'm a, He's I'm a Gary V podcast. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, there you go. Maybe that's why we're here together today, Connor. Yeah. I'm a Gary V guy. I, I also was a Tony Robbins guy before some of his issues but I'm still a Tony Robbins guy. I mean, I think some of that. Stuff, you got to you got to give respect there. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I think a lot of that, you know, marketing, advertising, promotion, messaging is just really, really crucial, especially now with social media. As we relate to young people, as we try and raise money, as we try and relate to the parents of of our student athletes. I mean, all that stuff is so interconnected and and it's all motivational, right? We're all trying to motivate each other to be the best we can. We're motivating our young people to go on and do things that they maybe they don't think they can do. I mean, that's one huge thing that I've learned now here is that we are just as talented as any other team out there, maybe not Harvard or Penn or Columbia or Trinity or whatever, but you know, a lot of teams we just we have the talent, but they just don't know it. And they haven't been told it and they haven't been shown that they have this talent yet. And so obviously that's my job, you know, and our job collectively to sort of instill some of that motivation in them. But yeah, all the, the motivational, you know, Gary Vee, Tony Robbins, you know, some of them are very gimmicky and more hardcore than others. But I, I just, I love that. I mean, it gets me thinking about my place with my student athletes, but also my place with my family and my wife and, and our girls and, you know, what's coming next completely agree. And I think this is a reminder that often in our lives, we have opportunities to both mentor or be a mentor E, yet we're at a unique position in our humanity that we can have digital mentors. And I can tell you, Gary V again, was the inspiration and continues to be because he, his head is now as part of my mental voice. And I think it's a health thing. We can often have unhealthy voices in our head. And that's really something to audit. Well, I appreciate taking the time here. And obviously, this is going to be a long one in Squash Radio, but I think it's well worth the listen. And quickly before I close it out, I did an appreciation. We had a semi-French connection here. Now, granted, and you can correct me, my French in a second, I grew up in Belgium until I was about seven years old. So my first education, and maybe this is why I have that exposure, was at a French-speaking school, so to speak. So, quand je suis très petit, j'habite en Belgique, but j'ai oublié tout mes français. So yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> I haven't forgotten my French, but I don't speak it as well as I should, and and that's something my parents are not happy about. I know. I agree. Uh, Terry Linku, who is just such a yep. pillar in the community, I thank you for 
you know, tolerating my French when I try and practice it. And he's very <laughs> forgiving. That's nice because I don't even speak French to Terry anymore. <laughs> That's good for you, Connor. I No, he, he speaks to me in French and then I speak to him in English. But yeah, on a side note, it's been really cool to watch the elevation of French squash, especially because of, uh, you know, Gauthier and, and the other guys too. But it's been, it's been really cool to watch Terry do what he's done at MIT. And, you know, I just, I mean, I think, you know, as we talked about guys like Terry in, in college squash, like I'm all for it. Like bring it on, Yeah. you know, bring it on. And it's not a lot. We'll just to say, well, it's a, you know, former world number one and they're trying to bring in a hotshot coach and all that. It's not that. By the it's way, just, no, no, no. Let's just break down this myth. And I think you can help do that. Yeah. By the way, a lot of people mistake on court for off court. Totally. How much time do you spend on court percentage of time? Oh, the 20%? Yeah. Maybe. Right? And so, I mean, maybe. So, actually, it's an unfair thing to also say that a good player makes a good coach. So, it's bring it in because I think there's a, a wealth of opportunity there, knowledge. But yet. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, again, we've said we've beaten this dead horse already that what we're doing ultimately, like the X's and O's of squash are important for winning squash. But there's only really one or two teams that are winning right now in squash. And everyone else is trying to get there. But in the meantime, we're teaching lessons, right? And a lot of those lessons, you know, four out of five of those lessons are not squash lessons. They are life lessons about adversity and, you know, breaking down walls and, and you know, all these other things that prepare kids for the rest of their lives. So Terry's perspective and, you know, and Whitey and Mike Way and all these guys, I mean, I love it. I absolutely yeah. love it. Coming in from a different country, different perspectives. Yes, obviously the squash is, you know, world-class, but for them to impart their knowledge, their life experiences on, you know, American kids and, and kids from abroad that don't come from where they come from is invaluable. I mean, that's why we need to keep college squash. That's why squash needs to survive because my colleagues, my friends, our colleagues are just amazing. They're just amazing and, and we need more of them and we need to keep it going. Well said, and we can let that be the the last word on this uh, for this episode. And you know, again, thank you. I'm trying to do a better job of expressing the thoughts that I have because you don't always know if the other people have it. And you know, you obviously have done just a tremendous job for the sport squash. Every community you go into, you've been a pillar of that community and helped raise others around you. Thank you. And I'll say it again, and I will find this email for you that when I was trying to lay out where Denison Squash could go. I said we should aspire to be Trinity because they were the national championships at the time. But I think beyond that is the network that you built at Bates and how you built that program was where I think we could model off of. So Thank you. I'm very proud of that. That's that's my school, no question. Now it makes sense that the connective tissue there was also uh, Coach Asiente, who we both... Uh, Absolutely, done. absolutely. His check is in the mail for me, no question. <laughs> thank you for your time today, Pat. Yeah, thanks, Connor. I'm excited to be here. Yes, thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and... Well, 
Until next time, be well and have fun.